Welcome to Made It Happen podcast. I'm your host, Sarah Hafling. Made It Happen is a podcast series highlighting female founders who took a chance and launched their own business. Through interviews with female entrepreneurs, Made It Happen is dedicated to inspiring others through stories of those who've experienced going out on their own firsthand, discussing all the highs and the lows. It can be easy to see the glamorous side of starting your own business through the internet and social media, but what does it really take behind the scenes to launch and run your own successful business? Listen in for tangible tips and advice for growing your business from those who have been there. Hear how these inspiring female founders made it happen. I'm Melissa Hopper, Creative Director at South Point Publishing, Editor of South Point Living Magazine, and I'm also a freelance business advisor to entrepreneurs. I'm thrilled to be guest hosting this episode of the Made It Happen podcast. And I want to say a big thank you to Sarah Hafling for asking me to do this. I'm a huge fan of what Sarah is doing with the Made It Happen podcast, bringing us so many great conversations with ambitious women. And I also love what Sarah is doing with the Elevate Podcast Co. I've been fortunate enough to work with Sarah on another podcast, and I honestly can't thank her enough for what she's doing and helping others make their own podcast dreams a reality. So want to also say, be sure to check out the new Made It Happen merch that Sarah recently launched. I just got one of the sweatshirts and I can tell you it is super comfy. And you know, those days when you're working on your financials and all the admin side of things that aren't overly fun, but are totally necessary to run a successful business. That super comfy made it happen sweatshirt is going to be the perfect thing to wear on one of those days. So make sure you check out that merch. I'm excited to be talking to Jennifer Kem today. Jennifer is a San Francisco Bay Area based brand building and leadership expert who gets entrepreneurs seen, heard and paid for simply being themselves. Jennifer is the creator of the Master Brand Method, a framework to develop powerful brand archetypes that win customers' hearts, leveraging Jennifer's 20 years of corporate experience and her launching of multiple companies. She uses the Master Brand Method in strategic consulting for emerging entrepreneurs. She's worked with celebrity brands like Oprah Winfrey Network and Steve Harvey, and also major corporations including Verizon, Blue Cross Blue Shield, and Bank of Hawaii. What she is most passionate about in her work today is what she calls her legacy project, Femfluence, a platform that supports women leaders to fully rise into their influence and affluence so they can make an even greater impact in the world. Jennifer serves up straight talk wrapped in love because she understands entrepreneurs' challenges. She built a retail business and became a millionaire at age 32, only to lose it all in the recession two years later. She is now the successful owner of $3 million brand building businesses and the mother of three. And I am very excited to be talking to Jennifer today. Before we jump into today's episode, I want to talk about The Breakfast Pantry a female-powered Canadian brand dedicated to helping customers experience their best mornings. They thoughtfully curate a selection of plant-based breakfast and pantry staples, health and wellness products, eco-conscious home goods, and more. When shopping with the Breakfast Pantry, you're supporting dozens of small businesses whose products are available on their site. You can shop via their e-commerce store at www.thebreakfastpantry.com where they offer shipping across Canada and the U.S., that's thebreakfastpantry.com. Thank you so much for being here today, Jennifer. And just wondering if you can start by telling us a little bit about yourself and giving us some of your background. 
well, it's a long winding yarn, I like to say, because I'm not a spring chicken. I'm a seasoned chicken. <laughs> but I'll give you the high points, I guess, and even the low points of, of you know, how I started this crazy journey of being an entrepreneur and also, you know, owning four businesses. Well, you know, I, I let me just say, put it this way. I never thought I was going to be an entrepreneur. Um, growing up, I, I wanted to be an attorney. I'm really glad that didn't work out. Not just, not because I have anything against attorneys, but I realized when I was basically rejected from being an attorney that I had a different path in life. And I actually started out my career in the corporate world and worked there for over a decade. I left my job in 2006 to start crazily because I was the VP of marketing of one of the biggest telecommunication companies in the world when I left. And I like to tell people I didn't have any good reason to leave. I had, you know, a $400,000 salary in 2006, mind you, uh, a corner office with a disco ball in it and a parking spot with my name on it, which actually was the most, like, I thought that was like the biggest highlight of my career. And I left um, the corporate world to start my own company. And, you know, I've never looked back um, since then. So that's a little taste of what I did before this. And then going back to just saying that you initially thought you were going to be a lawyer, ended up in the corporate world, those things, you know, the, the law thing didn't work out for you. But at the time, did you realize that that was a, a good thing? Or was that something that you were struggling to come to terms with? I did. I struggled because I think that anytime we have our heart or our mindset on something, that's the identity that we have in our mind's eye. We're thinking, okay, I'm going to become this person. And when that doesn't happen, it's human nature to say, oh gosh, like, what do I do now? Like I'm flailing or, you know, what's my purpose? And I think that happens to every single person. And it happens at many points in our lives when not, when anything doesn't work out for us, whether it's personal or professional. And so, yes, I did. I, I was stuck for a little while and I was glad that I, I just needed a job, frankly, <laughs> Melissa. I, 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 I was going to school in the Silicon Valley, right, in the San Francisco Bay Area. And that was the first online boom um, in the uh, early 2000s. And I was lucky because jobs were aplenty. Let's put it that way. Um, and so I was like, I guess I should work in tech, right? And, and that's kind of how I fell into it. And again, I'm grateful because it actually helped me hone my skills and my, my craft uh, before becoming an entrepreneur. So that was, it was a happy, but at the time, not happy accident. And then being in the corporate world and deciding to leave there, was that a tough decision to make? And I, I often wonder when decisions like this get made, do you remember the moment when you said, okay, this is it, I'm actually going to do this and how you felt leaving something that you had known for so long and going out on your own as an entrepreneur? Oh, heck yes. <laughs> like I could, it's seared in my memory. And to this day, it's one of my opening stories when I speak from stage or, you know, I'm writing a book right now and it's my opening story in the book. So that moment was basically, let's, I'll just kind of wind it back a little bit. I was kind of known as the fixer in the corporate world, meaning when there was a tough project, they called Gen Chem. It was like tough project, can't get it implemented. Um, can't launch this product, bring in Gen Chem. And I was running the business to business division of Verizon, of uh, the West Coast at the time. And they had this new product because, you know, for those of you listening, I know most of you perhaps don't even know what a landline phone is. Okay. But 
you know, at the time, it was the end of that era for telecommunications companies, right? They had to reinvent themselves. They could not, you know, be in that business anymore. They would die. And so obviously, cell phones and mobile, everything became the thing. And it was already here, but it was starting to really scale and grow. But it wasn't enough to sustain the future of a company like Verizon or AT&T. And um, they needed to do something different. And so there was this new thing called internet protocol television, okay, which today is what everyone knows as streaming services, okay, Netflix, Hulu, you, you name it. Well, I was one of the first people to ever launch streaming to the world. And it was a project that no one wanted. And they brought me in and said, you know, do it. And I was like, I have no desire to do that. I'm making great money. I had two young girls, two daughters at the time. Um, they're grown now. But and I was like, no, this is the project I'm not taking because I knew it was huge. And it had a lot, there were high stakes for me because if I did it well, I could get promoted. If I didn't do well, it could ruin my career because I was, I like to win, you know, it's like, I like that I was always the top of a project. So anyway, my top, my boss talked to me into it, Melissa, because he said, if you do this, you're going to be in line for something big, right? Like you're going to get promoted, just do it for us. Right. And so at the time, I thought my highest value was ambition and family, or my two of my highest values were ambition and family. And I said, okay, fine, I'll do it. And for two years, I toiled. Uh, I dealt with a lot of politics, red tape. I had to communicate with the engineers, the marketing teams, the, the executives, like I always do, but it was really high stakes because this was like going to transform their entire business to consumer division, right? Besides mobile phones, this was going to be the play streaming services. Anyway, I did successfully implement it. Long story short, um, it was hard, but it is one of the highlights of my corporate career and also the last thing I did in corporate. Uh, because on the day that I was supposed to get my promotion, my colleague got the promotion instead. And I was basically doing his job for two years while he was doing his everyday job because he didn't want that project. And I realized in that moment when I was told that he was going to be my boss now, <laughs> that I call it like a violation happened. And I'm writing my book about this, about being values driven and, and how violations shape your identity and your future. And this violation of this promise not being kept made me realize that I had no control over my future. And that was the moment I realized the only way for me to have control is if I start my own thing. And I made that decision in the elevator bay, walking out of my boss's office, who was on the top floor of the building. And I remember kind of skulking into the, the hallway of the stairwell and I cried. And I wasn't somebody who showed at the time a lot of emotion because I had to be steely and focused and, and, and all of that. And I cried and I thought, this is so unfair. And by the way, I just want everybody to hear this who's listening. Um, it worked out okay. So that's the good news. Uh, but that was that moment to answer your question. And I made a nine-month plan to exit. That's the other thing I think is important to hear. People typically hear this story where it's like, burn the ships and just leave. Well, I didn't have that option because I had two young girls to pay for. <laughs> like I had a life and a family. But I did make a decision to leave nine months later. And I saved my uh, paycheck, half of it every month, didn't buy new shoes, you know, didn't buy a new car. Um, and I made great money. So, you know, I was able to put away a good amount to then have a little bit of 
risk tolerance to actually start my own company. So that's what happened. And it's crazy to think just such a disappointing situation though actually helped make it easier for you to make that decision to leave and to go out on your own. Yeah. And I think that's, you know, when you asked earlier when I didn't become a lawyer, you know, was I disappointed? Yes. And just like, was I disappointed by what happened? Absolutely. It sucked. You know I mean? I was, I thought, wow, like you work hard and this is the reward. And I realized that the system was not set up for people like me. Right. And you're right. Like that's why I call it violations. When you've been violated professionally in any way, shape or form, it's an opportunity, not just a disappointment to go, what do I really want? You know, did I really want this? And I think a lot of people don't take that pause uh, because they're just focused on the disappointment, which by the way, you should absolutely feel it because it is, feelings are valid. And then there's also hope and opportunity after if you look at it in a different way. And I absolutely love that. And I think that's so important for people to hear that, to look at your disappointments. And I agree with you, feel that, go through all the emotions, but then realize that out of that disappointment, there is an opportunity there if you just look hard enough and find it. So I, I absolutely love that you said that. And then you decided that was it. You gave, you know, you you continued at your job for nine months and set yourself up to be able to go out on your own. What was your first entrepreneurial experience like the early days of realizing, okay, this is it, I'm actually doing this? Mm-hmm. Well, you know, I was a, a strategy and marketing executive, right? And I thought, it's so funny looking back, you would think that given that I would start a company in that realm. Okay. I didn't. I started an underwear company, literally an underwear company um, for women. And I didn't have this background in textile design or retail, except for the fact that I like to shop. (laughs) And the reason I chose that is because I'm really, one of my strengths is spotting, I can smell the money people say about me and I can spot a winning idea or product pretty easily. And I used to fly to Dallas because that's where the headquarters of Verizon is pretty often, like every six weeks. And I lived in Hawaii and it's a very long flight. And when I would come back, on the and we would land, I would notice that women would have a new carry-on that they were carrying, and it was the Victoria's Secret bag. And I realized that, oh yeah, I would had one too. And it was because in Hawaii there was no place to buy underwear for women except for Walmart. There wasn't even a Macy's or a Nordstrom at the time, if you can believe it. And I was like, oh, I can totally do this. So I, because I didn't have an idea. That's the point, Melissa. Like when I made that nine-month plan to leave. I didn't know what business I was going to start. See, and I think that's also what someone, I hope this helps people. Like you don't have to figure it all out. You just have to know and decide and then realize, okay, the ideas are going to come to you. Some people already have the idea that they want to do, but for me, I didn't. And I thought I was going to be a corporate executive my entire career. So anyway, um, I was like, that's the winning idea because, and I was like, oh my gosh, like starting a retail business and a real estate business, that's a lot of capital. A lot of inventory, a lot of overhead. You definitely have to like hire people um, to run your your retail business. And um, I took my savings and I remortgaged my house and I took that money that I saved and I started my own store. And 
within 18 months, that store was generating over $10 million. And it's because I had a winning idea. So then I expanded. Now, remember, I left my job in 2006, or 2005, rather. And 2006, I started my company. I was growing like wildfire. I couldn't even keep stuff in stock. And then at the same time, Oprah had her bra fitting special, which made people go, women go gangbusters of getting their fitting, you know, getting, wearing the right size. And then Sarah Blakely, we had just started Spanx. And I was the first company to carry Spanx in the state of Hawaii. So there was just a lot of like right time moments for me. But if those of you listening know about the economy and what happened two years later, which was the Great Recession of 2008, when, you know, there was everything shut down, basically. And if you were in retail or real estate, those were two of the most hardest hit industries in the small business world. Like, you know, I tell people that at the time of this recording, we're just navigating the end, we hope, of a pandemic, um, you know, and, and whatnot. But in 2008, there was no bailout or help for small business. There was only a bailout for big business. And so when you were in a business like mine, which was low profit, but very visible and was generating all the cash, but also had a lot of inventory and real estate assets locked up in it. It was like basically like murder on the small business streets um, for a company like mine because people just stopped coming in. You know, they just stopped coming into the store. I mean, you're not going to buy $40 underwear when you are worried about your mortgage, right? That's just not going to happen. And so it was... It was it was both a thrilling ride, but it was also a devastating end because I went from making millions, literally being a millionaire, you know, having actually a million dollars in my bank account, to losing it all, um, having to liquidate everything, and both my I lost my home, I lost my marriage, um, I lost my self esteem. It was the lowest point in my life. Um, I was thirty two at the time, and you know, it was like the biggest ego blow ever. Right. Um, and so, you know, it was, it was really hard. And I think that when people see me now, they just assume like everything is like, Oh, it's just so easy for you to do business. I'm like, it's not easy for anybody to do business. That's the thing. I think that when you choose to be an entrepreneur, you're choosing the most wild and crazy world you could ever want. But you're choosing freedom and autonomy over anything else. And so to me, what happened in 2008, again, like I've talked about disappointments, that seems to be the theme of this podcast, which is interesting, which is cool. Um, that disappointment, if it hadn't happened, I would be in my mind so successful today and happy as I am today. But I wasn't happy at the time, for sure. I was in the deepest, darkest depression of my life at the time. And when all of that happened, at any point, did you consider going back to corporate world um, just to take some of that pressure off of yourself of being an entrepreneur? million percent. In fact, I thought that's what I was going to do. And that was a catalyst moment, just like that moment I just talked about where I figured out when I was going to leave the corporate world. I had a catalyst moment, which is what actually I do today, which is I need to go back to my boss and get my job back right? Because I had two children to think of, and I need to rebuild my life, rebuild my credit, rebuild everything. But I had an aha moment, this catalyst moment of going, wait a minute, I don't have to go back and be an employee, I can go back and be a consultant. Because any of you listening, if you've ever worked in the corporate world, 
employees hate that consultants get respected and paid more than them. <laughs> like they have all these ideas and then the consultant comes in and say, oh, this is a great idea. And the executives say, that's a great idea. And I realize, oh my gosh, I can go back to my boss and say, I want to come back, but I want to come back as a consultant. And I did that. And he was happy I wanted to come back. Now, I was mad at him still, but I was like, look, I got to feed my family, right? And he was like, we'll take you back however you'll be taken back. Because when you're good at your job, you know, um, you you can get your job back. But I want anybody listening, instead of doing that, consider saying, but I'm my own employee. Like I'm, it's my company. And that was the start of my company of one, you know, it was called Chemcom. It still exists today. It's one of my companies. I start, you know, I created an an LLC. I was Chemcom and I was Chemcom consultant of one. And that turned into, you know, a hundred thousand dollar contract, which then turned into millions of dollars. And they're still a client of mine today since 2009. So that's how I turned the that's how I turned the tables. And looking back, at people, I tell people today, like, look for the easier thing. I went for the harder thing, which was start a retail business. And I was in my head thinking, oh, yeah, because I can pick a winning product because that's what I did in my corporate career. But when I got smarter and I met disappointment, I realized, oh, the easiest way is to actually take my expertise and just get paid more for it. And so that's what, that, that's what happened. And it's still one of my companies today. And since that experience happened to you of losing your business, everything that you had worked so hard for, and then you decided that you were going to stick with entrepreneurship and still work for yourself. Did that experience of losing everything, has that in general, since that happened, taken away at all from your ability to celebrate your successes? Like, do you ever get nervous about something like that happening again? Or do you look at that as a learning experience that's, you know, given you so many lessons that you can take into your businesses now? I want to say, if you asked me that question 10 years ago, if you, you know, I would have said, yeah, I'm scared it's going to happen again. But the now me says, I'm actually not scared because I now know no matter what happens, I can rebuild again. I have proof, right? A proof of life, right? If you will. And that's the lesson I hope people take from this statement. It's not that I'm not humbled by every single boy am I humbled like to my knees humbled right by what's happened but it's because you can't see the light until you wander in the dark a little bit like you can't and and that comes from experience you know you have to experience failure to understand truly how, how to savor success like you can experience success but to savor it takes experiencing the opposite and I think in today's world, what we're all, and I'm, I, by the way, I'm a recovering perfectionist, still am. I'm a recovering, you know, uh, wanting to be right and successful all the time. I'm still that. But because I have failed, that's why I'm so confident. That's the part. I think people think confidence is something you're born with. I think for most of us, confidence comes from learning how to fail, how to fail well. I think that's the thing, failing well. And so, and I feel like I failed well, but I, by accident. And it's that reframe and the right people around me when I was failing that encouraged me, just like one or two people that allowed me to see the light. And I think that's so important too, like to take away. If you don't have people around you who are, are will hold you during the darkness, but also like make you see the future, uh, that's super important. I had that, so. 
Yes. And we know those people are hard to come by. So definitely if you have those people in your life, you know, you have to cherish that. And also if you don't I think it's important to seek those people out, especially for women in business, it can be lonely women, female entrepreneurs, it can definitely be a lonely road. So finding um, those that can support you in your good times and bad is so important. So important. I think it's the number one thing you actually need in your business is at least one other person who knows what you're going through. And I hope even this conversation, you can know that there are others like you, <laughs> like we're here and, and, but seek somebody out that you can have a conversation with or invest in working with a mastermind or something around you so that you have support. Yes, absolutely. Uh, and that's why I think too, not to, to bring up the disappointments and the failures too much, but I do think it's important so that other other women and other entrepreneurs in general can see that, you know, it's not always this highlight reel that we seem to see on social media, that there are those struggles, but knowing that other people have gone through it, others will hopefully take comfort in that and understanding how normal it is to fail and how you can improve yourself by failing and taking, you know, learning moments out of it. So I think that it's great that you've mentioned all of that. Now, a lot of the work that you do um, is helping people to build an actual brand and not just a business. So what advice do you have when it comes to building a brand? So let's first define what brand means, because I think a lot of people think brand means logos, colors, typography, etc. And yes, those are branding components, but they are not your brand. So your brand is the experience people feel when they interact with your business. Okay. The business is how you operate and the brand is how you make people feel. And your business is actually part of your brand, I guess. The brand is like the top of the things, okay? It's how, if you ever think about even the people that you watch in highlight reels <laughs> and your social media, they're building their own personal brands, right? That's what they're doing. And they're creating trust with their audience or their creating fascination or they're creating disgust, whatever they're creating, they're creating a feeling, right? And so a brand is a feeling and from that feeling comes visual output like your website, like your logo, etc. So there are three types of brands. There are personal brands, offer brands, and company brands. And they are intertwined sometimes, sometimes not. For example, I think the easiest example just to use a company that I think all of us know is Apple, right? So when you think of Apple, that's the company brand. Their offer brand are a bunch of things, but the iPhone, MacBook Pro, you know, those are their products, right? And then their personal brand that most people know them of is Steve Jobs, right? Um, they know Steve Jobs founded Apple and that, you know, the Mac, the Mac, the iMac was his big breakthrough and then he did the iPod then he did the iPhone and so and then the and then the iPad right so again obviously that's a big company and we talk about entrepreneurship i like to say that small business owners have a lot to learn from big brands because if you're busy looking at let's say your competition or your like somebody who's in the same space as you instead of using the bigger models as your inspiration, you're playing in a small pond. When I told you the story about how Victoria's Secret was the inspiration for me starting my first multi-million dollar business, that's like a perfect example of why that works. 
Do you know what I mean? And so building a brand is about, because the other thing I want to say is like Steve Jobs started out exactly where we all are in a garage with Steve Wozniak talking about his big visions, right? And he decided he wanted to build something that big. Now, most of us don't want something that big, especially I think, and I'm making a stereotypical reference here, but I don't mind because I think I've done a lot of research to know that women in general are not interested in building something like that. We're built, we're interested in building something sustainable and something where we can make an impact, right? And my point is, is that you can build that by still looking at the bigger brands as inspiration. And that's what makes my company a little bit different is that we don't focus just on, oh, let me ask you like what your favorite colors are or like what's your identity. I actually don't do any graphic design. We don't do any of that in our company. We do uh, strategy and how to like present yourself and what are your three offer, you know, what's your three brands. And sometimes you don't have a personal brand that drives the business. Right. Um, but I think in this today's world, you're, that's becoming more and more important than ever because of social media. So it is something you need to consider in your strategy. So I know I answered your question pretty long, but that's what a brand really means. Well, I think it, it's important because there's so many people out there who are struggling to figure out what their brand is and to, um, you know, identify that for their target market. So I think that was that was great and very helpful. Now, you do work with a lot of many successful people. And what do you think it really takes for someone to be successful? Hmm. Well, first of all, the, my my philosophy of success is called values driven. So you know, a lot of people use the buzzword values. They hear it in relationship with brand to like brand values. What are your core values, right? And yes, it's that. There's an academic component to values, but values to me is the heart of our success because the truth is, is that we behave and do what our values tell us to do, okay? And the the issue with values is that they come from three places. They come from your vision, they come from your voids and they come from your violations. So let me explain what that means. Your vision is pretty obvious. It's the thing that you're dreaming of. It's the thing like how you see or the impact you want to make, right? So most of us are visionaries. When we want to start a company, we're visionaries, right? But the problem is, is that you're not considering the two other things that have shaped you as a leader. And those are your voids and your violations. Voids are what you perceive is missing in your life. In fact, it's probably why you have a vision because there's something missing and you want to fix it, right? You want to solve it. And then violations are moments in your life where your vision was compromised. In my case, one of the biggest violations was when I got passed up for that promotion. And if you take stock of your vision, your voids and your violations, and you actually know yourself, um, you become not results driven, but values driven. And then you start to make better decisions and you see disappointment as opportunity. And that makes you make better decisions and it makes you feel successful. And to me, success is definitely not just about money. I, I, you know, I'm, I'm grateful that I know that to me, and I say this with pure humility, I promise is like money is easy. Making money is easy. And that's part of what like people don't get, especially women, like Stop putting that. The issue is not money. The issue is you don't know what's actually driving you. And when you know that, you'll create metrics that are your own to be successful. So 
and and you'll do it in the four areas of life that we care most about. You know, we we care about wealth, sure, but like we also care about relationships, our health, and our relationship to ourselves. And those four areas, to me, when you take stock of those and in relationship to your values, you can call yourself living successfully, right? And when I say that, you're going to face more disappointment. I'm going to, I'm sure of it before I leave this earth, you know? In fact, leaving this earth feels like a disappointment. Like I want to live longer, but um, <laughs> but it is what it is, right? Uh, life is basically a series of tsunamis and lazy rivers and everything in between, right? And that's what life is. And so to me, that's what defines success. I think that was wonderfully put. And I think too, and going back to, as long as you're operating based on your values, that makes it a lot easier to have um, your brand have consumers be able to trust your brand because it truly is just an extension of you and you're not pretending to be anybody else. Exactly. Now, what are some of the myths that you think people should ignore when they're pursuing their entrepreneurial dreams? Um, I think we've talked about one that's pretty common denominator in this conversation, which is that disappointment or failure is like, is going to kill you. Uh, I guess technically it could, but most of the times it's not. In fact, I know this is going to sound really counterintuitive and contrarian, but disappointment can be nutritious for you. It can be nourishing. It doesn't feel like that in the moment, but if you allow yourself to see it differently, it can be the next greatest win of your life. I think the other myth is that, you know, we talked about this too, so I just want to kind of recap is that what a brand really is. And I think that people are not approaching it in the way that they think, and they're looking at what I call the social media Joneses, right? They're kind of like trying to keep up with the social media Joneses. And I know it's hard because we are completely inundated with that intake, if you will, right? That ingestion of me too. You know, I, I definitely get FOMO and comparitis and, and all the things too. I do get those things. I'm not some type of like robot. Okay. I, people think I am, but I'm like, no, I mean, that stuff pierces me too. So I have to like really try to refrain from engaging in that. So that's a myth. Like, you know, the people's highlight real arch is exactly that. It's just the high points. It's not the low points for the most part. And then even the way that the low points are messaged, don't tell the whole story, right? So one myth is like the story is not the whole story. Just know that. And what matters most is you can be inspired by other people's stories, but you have to be inspired by your own story. That's that's the part. You have to be inspired by yourself. Another myth I actually brought up is that, you know, I took nine months to make my decision to be an entrepreneur. And I am not your advisor to say, just jump out and leap out. I actually don't believe in that. I totally know that other people do, and it's fine. I respect that their views. But I I don't I also don't think you should wait nine months. In fact, now that I know better, I wouldn't have waited nine months. I would have probably done it in three months if I can look back, you know, connect the dots backwards. But I think that having a thoughtful plan and really knowing what you want next is a good idea. And so if you are a planner, it's good. Just don't over plan. Don't overthink because that's also the killer of dreams. I, I always like to say that maybe is the devil. Okay. <laughs> Trust your yes or no decisions. Okay. They know is a great answer for anything. And it just will open up a new opportunity instead of you thinking you're missing out. And so uh, you are going to be missing out and that's good. 
because you made a decision. And every time you make a decision moving forward, you're actually on the right path, even if it takes you off the path. So those are some of my sage myth advice. Yeah, that's great. I love I love that advice. And you have a knack for being able to predict what's coming next in the marketplace. Um, you know, you'd mentioned that briefly earlier. So what do you see as, um, you know, what might be the next, I don't want to say trends, but what might come next for small businesses and entrepreneurs? I think that it depends on what type of entrepreneur you are, right? So if we just talk about it at a meta level, I do think that storytelling will never die, no matter what. And so getting good at telling your stories is always going to be critical. And it's going to even be more hyper important as what I call AI and automation take over. What's really going to stand apart as human beings is our stories and how we help people. Definitely um, going to be interesting to see how things change, but I, I'm excited for it. I mean, I just can't wait to see um, you know, what, what evolves from where we are now and thinking 10, 20 years from now where we're going to be. I think it's exciting. And now you are open on social media that you have what you call extremely painful social anxiety. So I think there's a lot of people that can probably relate to that. And I think it's something that doesn't get talked about enough. And I would just like to know, how do you manage that kind of anxiety on a regular basis? And what advice do you have for others who might also be going through that? I love this question. I do think that you're right. No one really talks about that. And why it was important was because people, once they, here's the thing, people will view you if you put yourself out there in any way, shape or form as confident and therefore nothing must shake you or, you know, you must be made of Teflon. And I definitely am not. In fact, I'm a highly sensitive person. Um, I'm introverted by nature. I prefer books over people. Um, <laughs> so how do I manage it? First of all, I have implemented many what I call success rituals into my life. And what that looks like is I don't typically work before 10 a.m. I need my mornings to just step into the world with peace. And for me, that's what works for me. And so I, I share these saying, you have to find your own flow, first of all. If you want to uh, overcome anxiety, find your flow, right? Protect the asset, which is you. And so for me, I step into my day very gently. Uh, but once I'm in my day, I have a throttle and a pulse that I can operate at, which is intense. And it actually works for me. So I will intensely work for four to six hours and it feels good. And then I really close everything. Like I do not check. If someone texts me at night, I don't even look at it. Unless it's one of my kids, I don't look at texts. I don't look at social media. And for some of us, that's hard. I get that. But like I use social media for work. I don't use it for personal. Because social media gives me freaking anxiety, like mega, right? So I have systems in place, meaning, and when I say systems, my definition of systems is people, process, and technology. So I have people who help manage my social accounts, but it's still me. I have process, which I just shared. Like I basically work from 10 to four, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, Monday and Friday are creative days for me. So I only work on creative projects. I don't have any meetings. I don't talk to other humans. And frankly, I've also, you know, I really believe this, take it with a grain of salt for you, but I really believe every entrepreneur needs a therapist. <laughs> like, I truly believe like, you know, a lot of people get have coaches, which is great. I, I absolutely believe in coaching. But if you're not dealing with the past stuff, 
that's getting in the way of you feeling good in the world. I'm also a big fan of like, if you need medication or holistic, you know, help, explore all of that. Like, don't judge based on other people. Get curious with yourself. What's going to help you feel good in the world, right? And, and get help and don't be ashamed of exploring any option that helps you do that. And I think, again, it's just so important to have these conversations because your business is not going to operate as well as it could if you personally aren't operating as well as you could be. So I completely agree with you. I think all of those things are, um, you know, for anyone that needs it, there should be no shame in that. And really, it's something that you should make the time to do because not only will you be a better person for it, but your business will be better. Your home life will be better. I mean, we, we all, I think, can think of a time in our lives when we have tried to do too much and overextend ourselves and everything kind of falls apart. So that starts with how we feel personally and how we're doing on a regular basis. So I do think that's very important. And I also want to talk about to you, you had mentioned your children. So what tips do you have for other um, moms who are entrepreneurs on how to sort of juggle motherhood with entrepreneurship? Oh, gosh, well, be honest with yourself, you know, you can do anything, but you can't do everything. Right. So one thing I'm really proud of is that I don't think I've been perfect. I don't think you can be perfect, but they still like me. I think that's like a, <laughs> that's how I define motherhood is like, if your kids still like you, like sometimes they hate you, which is the opposite of love, but do they still like you and respect you? Um, and I think my two older daughters, they grew up with me in my corporate career and then saw me jump into entrepreneurship. And I think that, you know, being honest with them and modeling what it was happening and, having the discernment and nuance to still be their mother, not their friend. And I think that's a weird, tricky thing. And I think that the thing is, it's messy. We're so busy. And what you said earlier about like, you got to take care of yourself. It's so true. Like, if you get burnt out, you're going to want to burn everything down, including your family. And what I mean by that is like, you know, I had a, I had a failed marriage, you know, I was such an ambitious person. And I obviously I was so stressed from my first business, it, it caused the demise of my marriage. And by the way, I also think that if your marriage is supposed to end, it should, okay, back to like, you know, whatever. But my point is, is that I tell people all the time, I, I don't think you get married to get divorced. And so getting divorced, I felt I didn't want to be that role model for my two daughters, like, oh, you know, I'm a failed woman, I couldn't stay, you know, I didn't have, you know, a perfect marriage. And, and I had to realize that, like, this is what happens, like, this is life. And what I realized is that there's no such thing as business problems because anything in business can be solved with help. Even Google can give you a lot of answers. Okay. But most business problems are caused by personal problems or issues you're not dealing with, including that with your family. Right. And so if you are a values driven leader, which is what for me is important, like who we work with and who like we adopt this philosophy is like, you'll get honest that your values drive how you behave. And it allows you to be not just good in business, but really better at relationships, including those with your children. And it's helped me a lot. So I don't know if that answers the question. But I just want to say, like, if you're a mom, and you're trying to figure out how to do it all, you're right, you can't do it all. So do you need systems in your life, people process and technology, when I say technology, like things that'll um, help you. I, I, one, one thing I want to say is like, when people ask me, like, if you were starting all over again, Jen, in your business, who would you hire first? 
And I would say a housekeeper, because if you're starting a business, I know it sounds crazy for you to be like, how can I use my money for that? Housekeeper and somebody to feed your kids a couple of days a week so that you have some open time to work on your business instead of trying to do it all. That is going to go a long way. But just be committed to that open space and time that you have that you spent, let's say, $300 a month or whatever it costs, like to even get one day a month where you don't have to clean your house, right? And you use that day to work on your business. So in my mind, that would be my answer, like figure out how you can get help and prioritize that so that you have space and you have time to work on your business. Don't always jump straight to like, I should hire like every expert in the world to help me grow because it doesn't account for what you have at home. Does that help? I hope that makes sense. Yes. Absolutely. And I think it's such a good point that if you can hire somebody, let's say, and it might seem like it costs a lot and you can't afford it, but if you can hire someone to come in and clean your house, to free up some time for you to be spending on your business, making money, then it's money well spent on hiring that person to come in. So I I think, and I completely agree. I just, I hate saying it this way, but kind of setting your expectations a little lower in the sense mm-hmm. that, yes, you can't do it all. So if you go into it knowing that, it's a lot easier to um, to digest what's coming at you and, and realizing that, no, I can't be superwoman, but I can be really good at all these things when I'm given the time to do those things. Yeah. Well, thank you so much. I really, really appreciate you sharing your story and, and sharing such great advice. And where can people find you online? Yeah. Um, well, I'm on all the things, but my two favorite places to hang out are on Instagram. You can find me at jennifer.com. I love answering questions in my DM. I have a YouTube channel where if you want to learn, I share all my frameworks and some of you heard some of them in this conversation and I go deeper under them on my YouTube channel. So those two areas plus LinkedIn. Um, and I also have something for everyone listening since we talked about brands and that's what my company does, one of the things that really helps open up your identity and understanding your brand is knowing what your brand archetypes are. And so I want to give a gift to everybody listening. You can go to confidently.me forward slash happen. And there's an assessment that we give all of our clients. We're giving it to you for free um, to figure out what your brand identity and voice are. Um, So I hope it's a good tool and resource for you to um, clarify where you're going. That's great. Thank you so much. We'll be sure to put that link in the show notes too, so that listeners can, uh, can get that link there. So thank you so much. Thanks so much for tuning in to Made It Happen podcast. I hope you enjoyed this episode. And if you did, please feel free to leave a rating and review on Apple Podcasts and Spotify. Don't forget to hit that subscribe button so that you never miss an episode. And thanks again for all your support. I'll see you next week.